Alabama's only union talk radio show. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. Appreciate you staying with us. Really looking forward to the second half of the show. We're talking to some folks from IATSE about unionizing the VFX industry and the video game industry. We're going to be talking to Taylor Barnes about her reporting on the defense industry. But first, let's talk about SAG-AFTRA. As you know, 160,000 actors with SAG-AFTRA are on strike right now and there was a lot of of hope and anticipation and i think expectation that after the writers were able to secure a deal for themselves that they ratified last week i think it was they ratified that deal um that and it was a good deal it was a pretty good deal they didn't get everything they were asking for i think they got about 50 percent of what they were asking for but they also got quadruple what the companies were willing to give them uh when the strike started so you know good deal good deal overall and so there was definitely an expectation that you know okay look the the companies have basically calmed down they've got their temper tantrum out of their system and so now they're going to negotiate in good faith with the actors and unfortunately, it does not seem that that is the case because on uh, the 12th of last week, SAG-AFTRA released an announcement that contract talks had broken down, that companies had walked away from the table. And it's very unfortunate. And so here's their statement that they released last week. To our fellow SAG-AFTRA members, it is with profound disappointment that we report the industry CEOs have walked away from the bargaining table after refusing to counter our latest offer. We have negotiated with them in good faith, despite the fact that last week they presented an offer that was shockingly worth less than the proposed than the proposal uh, than what they proposed before the strike began. So let that sink in for a second. <laughs> After months on strike, the companies tried to, or they offered a proposal worth less than what they went on strike over. Uh, really bad faith. Really bad faith bargaining. Not a productive partner in negotiations. And so the union countered that uh, terrible offer, slap in the face, with another, and the companies refused to submit another counterproposal. So industry CEOs have walked away from the bargaining table after refusing to counter our latest offer. These companies refuse to protect performers from being replaced by AI. They refuse to increase your wages to keep up with inflation. And they refuse to share a tiny portion of the immense revenue that your work generates for them. 
We have made big, meaningful counters on our end, including completely transforming our revenue share proposal, which cost the companies less than 57 cents per subscriber per year. Okay? <laughs> That's crazy. How much do you pay every month for streaming services, all told? All told, I probably pay 50, 60 bucks a month for streaming services, between three or four of them. And so what they're saying is for each one, they want a revenue share proposal with 57 cents per <laughs> subscriber per year, not per month. Right? So most of these, they're between like 10 and 20 bucks a month. Okay? So let's just say at $10 a month, which is lower, I think, than, than even the lowest. I think the lowest right now is like 13 but just for easy math, let's say $10 a month. That's $120 a year. <coughs> 57 cents divided by 120 is 0.47%. Half a percent, less than half, much less than half, right? Remember, because some of these, some of these are actually coming on twenty bucks an hour, uh, twenty bucks a month now. So much less than half a percent is what SAG-AFTRA is asking for uh, from subscription revenue. They rejected our proposals and refused to counter. Instead, they use bully tactics. Just tonight, they intentionally mes misrepresented to the press the cost of the above proposal, overstating it by 60%. They've done the same with AI, claiming to protect performer consent, but continuing to demand consent on the first day of employment for use of a performer's digital replica for an entire cinematic universe or any franchise project. Right? So, I mean, think about any cinematic universe. The first thing that comes to mind should be Marvel. How many projects are in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? And so, under this proposal, you could have had the guy who played Hulk in 2006 sign this consent, and then forever in perpetuity, as long as it's in the same cinematic universe, he has no more say over that performer's digital replica. I mean, that's just a ridiculous thing to ask for. The companies are using the failed, uh, the same failed strategy they tried to inflict on the WGA, putting out misleading information in an attempt to fool our members into abandoning our solidarity and putting pressure on negotiators. But just like the writers, our members are smarter than that and will not be fooled. We feel the pain these companies have inflicted on our members, our strike captains, IATSE, Teamsters, and basic craft union members and everyone in this industry. We have sacrificed too much to capitulate to their stonewalling and greed. We stand united and ready to negotiate today, tomorrow, and every day. Our resolve is unwavering. Join us on the picket line and at solidarity events around the country and let your voices be heard. One day longer, one day stronger, as long as it takes. Signed, your TV theatrical negotiating committee. So, 
a really uh, devastating, devastating announcement from SAG-AFTRA. Um, just really, really gross. Uh, very unfortunate. But, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, these are vampires and ghouls. And, uh, you know, they don't respect, they don't respect their uh, fellow man. The Hollywood Labor Unions, uh, they put out a joint statement supporting SAG-AFTRA. Uh, these being, uh, who are all of these unions? But, uh, okay, here we go. Uh, and this is from IATSE, they, uh, on their website. In a display of continued unity, unity, the Writers Guild of America West, the Writers Guild of America East, the Directors Guild of America... The International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, the American Federation of Musicians, the Teamsters, the Hollywood Basic Crafts, encompassing Teamsters Local 399, IBEW Local 40, Lyuna Local 724, <clears throat> OPCMIA Local 755, and UA Local 78 issued a joint statement in support of the Screen Actors Guild American Federation of Te Television and Radio Artists, SAG-AFTRA. In their ongoing negotiations with the studios represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, AMPTP. Here's the statement. Our members work side by side for the same handful of employers, and our unions and guilds collectively stand united more now than ever. Each day a fair contract addressing actors' unique priorities is delayed is another day working professionals across our industry suffer unnecessarily. At this point, it should be clear to the studios and the AMPTP that more is needed than proposals which merely replicate the terms negotiated with other unions. We collectively demand the AMPTP resumes negotiations in good faith immediately, make meaningful moves at the negotiating table with SAG-AFTRA to, to address performers' specific needs and make the deal they deserve. So, good statement. Good to see that support from the other Hollywood unions. Um, and really gross that the that the producers are, are doing this. Uh, totally yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, like you said, I, I was sort of hopeful after the writers got a deal that that meant, uh, you know, progress was coming. But um, we'll see. We'll see. I, I do love to see the solidarity from the other unions. Uh, we saw uh, different unions like IATSE and, of course, which is my union, which I'm very proud to be a member of, uh, but also the Teamsters, other unions that are impacted in the entertainment industry, uh, because a lot of folks are being impacted, not just the writers. Mm -hmm. I mean, not just the writers and the, and the actors themselves, but anyone connected to the industry itself. So the studios are harming a lot of people. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And I, I suspect, I haven't seen opinion polls in the same way I've seen opinion polls about UAW and the Big Three, but I suspect that the American people are behind the actors and are behind the workers here and not the studios. Yep. Yep. Uh, I've seen uh, some opinion polls about that, and I can't remember the specifics, but but it was very much in support of the workers and not the studios. Absolutely. Um, have we got our IATSE folks? Um in the Zoom. I do believe we do, yeah. Fantastic. Well, let's bring them on. We've got some folks that have been at the center of some really big, uh, some, all, some, uh, some other entertainment organizing. 
in the video FX industry and the video game industry. Now, the video FX industry is kind of unique in Hollywood because it's basically the only sector that is non-union or that has been non-union before this kicked off. Uh, now, IATSE has organized uh, VFX uh, workers at both Disney and Marvel. That's and right. I'm sure that we're going to be seeing some more. Um, and we've got uh, somebody from one of those campaigns. And we have somebody from Working Man Studios who was involved in the organization of that company. So uh, welcome to the show, folks. Hi, how are you doing? Doing good. Happy, happy to be here. Hey, yeah, welcome, welcome. Um, so I just wanted to start by giving each of y'all a chance to introduce yourself and kind of share your story. Tell us a little bit about what you do for work, what got you interested in unionizing, and of course, what got you involved in the campaign, and what have you been doing in the campaign? Uh, so Anna, let's start with you. Um, hi, my name is Anna George. Uh, I work in VFX, uh, visual effects for Marvel Studios. Um, visual effects is interesting because it's kind of split into two sides where you have the artistic element of it mm -hmm. and you also have the project management element of it. So I've been working for the project management element of it, working directly for Marvel on a couple of their previous Disney Plus shows. Um, I've worked my way up and now my... My next job title is going to be VFX coordinator. So essentially coordinating the artwork that comes from the different vendors they use on their shows and movies. Um, I got interested in unionizing as someone who's only been in the industry for about a year. Um, when I just realized that people even in the same department, uh, different protections from unions were being paid infinitely differently than I was being paid. Right. Uh, someone on the same tier as me was being paid double what I was making. And it wasn't because their job was more important or because their job was harder. It was just because they were protected and I wasn't. So right, right. Uh, I met up with our, un our organizer and we jumped in from there. That is so awesome. Yeah, I love to hear that. And I mean, it's I think it's always um, remarkable when someone who's still pretty new, like, just jumps right in but sometimes that's when it's um the most stark right because you are new and you're like really looking around and, and experiencing what you're experiencing and you're starting to ask questions about what's going on uh, and trying to get the lay of the land and sometimes that's when you get activated and i know for my personal story that was kind of the same situation i started out as a teacher and it was within my first year in the classroom. I was like, wow, this is not how it's supposed to be. We've got to do something. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, lo I love to hear that. Uh, so thank you, Anna. And uh, I'm curious about the video game industry. Uh, Matthew, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what got you involved as well? Hi, uh, I'm Matthew Vimislik. I am a project manager at Working Man, but I was an artist there for about nine and a half years before I got the job. And I got the promotion because all of our other project managers left. Uh, we had some uh, pretty large layoffs at the beginning of this year. Um, and it took everyone by surprise. It was just a, you know, hi, everybody. Uh, most of you are going to be let go or a good chunk of you are going to be let go. Uh, and you'll find out by the end of the day if you still have a job, mm. which really did not make relations with management much better. Um, but then over the next coming uh, months, just other people just kind of left for their own reasons. People had been around for like a while and we lost a lot of tribal knowledge. 
Uh, that's where we lost our project managers. Um, and at a certain point, like we kind of realized that if we did not make any big change, that our company was just going to like fall under and we were all going to lose our jobs. And if management wasn't going to do anything about it, then we were. Um, the troublesome part with the company that we're with right now is that we are a uh, client-based one. So we don't have any like products unto themselves. Like it is all run by labor. Uh, we work for clients like, you know, Nickelodeon, Disney. We're just like making these games. And once we lose like really knowledgeable people, like that's really where we lose the business entirely. We don't have any uh, many products of our own to go ahead and sell. So it, it was really important to all of our jobs that we unionize. Wow. Yeah. That's, I really appreciate you sharing that. And there was a couple of things that, that resonated with me. And one would be just how important the recruitment and retention of employees is in your situation, right? As, as you spoke to, um, that client relationship and, and having people on staff with those experiences, with those relationships, uh, and when you lose that, you lose a ton. So being able to retain folks and also <clears throat> something you mentioned that really stuck out is basically having to save the company from itself um, yeah. is what kind of it reminded me of. And, and I've talked to a lot of workers in those kind of situations where they see, you know, they want the company to be successful. They want to be successful in their own jobs. Uh, but they see things that are happening from ownership and from management uh, that are really a detriment to that. And, and that can often be a, a, you know, spur into organizing. Um, so I'm curious, Matthew, this, let's start with you. What, what all did you do during this organizing campaign? Um, and, and tell us, how did it get kicked off? Like, because the thing that's really interesting about, about this campaign is the very first video game, IATSE Union, to my knowledge, Right. So I'm curious, like what, what got it started? Um, it was me just calling the friends I had at the company, the people that I trusted where I knew, even if they were like, that's a terrible idea. Uh, they'd tell me and it would just stop there. But everyone that I called, including one person who ended up confiding to me that like they were quitting anyway. So they were like, I'd love to do this, but I already got a new job. Uh, everyone was in support like absolutely everyone. Um, so then once we started, like all of us split up the rest of the company, we're like, okay, you contact these people, you contact these people. And we slowly built it up until we had about like half of the people in our bargaining unit uh, pretty much on board with the idea before a lot of us even really knew how a union worked or what, you know, really those changes would mean other than just we would have a union. Um, once we had those numbers, just a small group of us, we reached out to some other union organizers. We took some classes, we read books. Uh, and finally, we reached out to IATSE, uh, who, uh, you know, was happy that we'd done a lot of the work so far, but they kind of took us back to square one and made sure that like, we really made sure that our numbers were set. Um, and, you know, I'm really glad that we worked with them. We ended up getting a unanimous uh, vote uh, when we got up to our election. So, you know, obviously whatever they advised us uh, worked out pretty well. That is huge to have a unanimous victory. And you mentioned an election. So I take it the company did not recognize the union, right? They had the option, but they chose not to recognize. Um, 
I think they were also not quite sure what the whole process was. Um, I I'm pretty sure they just Googled some stuff and rolled with it. Uh, <laughs> they came to us at first with, um, oh, we'll have an election by like a neutral third party. And there are companies that do these sorts of things. So uh, <laughs> we were like, okay, cool. I hadn't really heard about that before, but that sounds pretty great. IATSE was really on board with it. And then later on, they came back to us and they said, hey, turns out uh, there's this whole uh, branch of government that has like an agency that does these elections for us. So we're just going to do that instead, which ended up putting the whole efforts off by a month. Um, obviously, like if they were really trying to like stomp the union and like really slow stuff down as much as possible, that was a really great move. Um Honestly, I think it just kind of came out of a place of ignorance. But, you know, as much as they try to use verbiage that says like they're positive, they're really like encouraging of it. They've still done a lot of like really small things and really small statements that, you know, really kind of echo away at the work that we've done. Uh, probably the one that hurts the most is they kept saying congratulations for joining the union when like we went through the hard work of forming a union, which is a totally different thing. Um, so yeah, maybe not the most receptive, but you know, I've definitely heard it worse. Right, right, yeah. I think that's really interesting and I, I appreciate you sharing that experience um, because it is new for the video game industry. Um, and so it is like conceivable that a lot of people in, in, in corporate management are not going to be familiar with the union process or what it what it means when their workers want to unionize. Um, and, and something else I think that's worth highlighting there is <clears throat> that there's a broad spectrum of responses from companies. Uh, and of course, on listeners to our show are familiar with Amazon and Starbucks and like how extreme a union busting campaign can be. Uh, but it, it really varies wildly. And you also have companies that are like, collaborative and recognize the union right off the bat and everything in between. Uh, so those experiences really just vary from from place to place. Um, but yeah, I just want to to emphasize something you said, which is starting the union from scratch, like starting in a new shop, uh, going through that process of, of building an organizing committee and splitting up the employees and talking to folks. That is that's hard work It's important work. Uh, and so I just really want to congratulate y'all on doing that and, and being able to win unanimously, uh, I think is just really a testament to your organizing and a testament to the hard work and, and the unity that you were able to build. Thank you. Uh, and Anna, I'm curious about your campaign. Uh, tell us a little bit about how things got kicked off at Marvel VFX. You know, what were some of the issues and, and how did the process play out there? So uh, I worked closely with our uh, organizer, Mark Patch. The biggest thing is this: the, what you were talking about, where you spend so much time just talking to every single individual employee. You need to know that every employee that you're working with is, is going to be voting yes and that this is what they want. And I think it was resounding at Marvel. As long as I've been there, it's something that we've talked about and what you hear in the VFX industry all the time is how badly this was needed. And so I worked with him just reaching out to people, you know, it's luckily a small enough community that 
you can text your friends and they can text their friends. And next thing you know, you've spider webbed into chatting with everyone and getting that resounding yes that we were really excited about. Um, from there, it was then making sure that everyone understood how the ballots worked. So when the vote happened, it could happen quickly. And it would happen effectively, getting people the shirts so that they could be proud of being a part of IATSE and and also doing all of this without necessarily alerting the company that it was happening. Because we, you know, we wanted to have our solidarity and our understanding there first before we went to Disney. Right, right. And that's something that that is important. It's not that you're like hiding anything per se. Uh, you're not like, you know, being secret spies or anything like like that. It's just there will be a time when when it's right to talk to management and to let them know, hey, we're a union. Here's what we're about. Um, and you just want it to be that right time after you've developed those relationships and, and built that solidarity, like you said. Um, and a lot of it really is as simple as a phone tree and figuring out who's going to call who, who's going to text who, and take notes on those conversations and see where those conversations lead you and, and get to know the issues that people have. Because what you think are the issues may not be the issues for every single person. Um, you know, what resonates with, with some people won't resonate with others. And, and listening to what those issues are is so, so important. Um, and I'm curious, were there any, you know, just like real hot button issues that really were motivating workers at Marvel VFX? Were, was there anything that really stood out that's like, you know what, we, we ought to fix this? Yeah, so I think the unanimous one, the one that everybody is on the side of is higher pay. Uh, I remember a conversation I had with a coworker where I was telling her if I could just make this amount of money, like if I just could get to this point in my career where I was making this amount that I would be set for life, I would never need a raise, I'd be so set. And as I told her this, she was in, she's in the editor's guild. And as I was telling her this, I finished and she just looked at me and she went, that's so sad because the number that I was dreaming about was $500 less a week than her minimum that her union required. Mm. And so like that kind of speaks, I think, to how like desperately we deserve to be on the same pay rate as a majority of the industry. That was like one of the big conversations I had with a lot of people. Additionally, the way that overtime works in our industry is really interesting. So for both of my positions, I was hired with a 60 hour minimum. Um, and on at least one of the shows, I met that 60 hour minimum every week. Oh on the God. second show I was hired on, I was hired with a 60 hour minimum with the understanding that there would be no daily overtime even if I worked it, if you work, instead of your 12 hour day, you work a 15 hour day, there won't be any overtime. So that's something that a lot of people uh, have been hired with the understanding of, and they need to see gone. We have to get rid of it. It's so dangerous for, for all of our workers to not be receiving the, the compensation they deserve for overtime, especially when we are working these crazy hours. Additionally, it gets rid of the incentive on the company to not work overtime if they don't have to pay us overtime. It allows them to just kind of, you know, use us as workhorses without having to think about the consequences of of a 15-hour day. Right. And so Absolutely. I think that's one of the most important things. Yeah, that is huge. I mean, and that really sticks with me what a persistent issue that is for workers all over this country in so many different industries, right? We, we see the UAW is fighting right now for a shorter work week. And 
it's not because realistically they expect all their members would only work 32 hours a week. It's because they know they're going to be asked to work well beyond that, right? Beyond even 40 into the 50s, into the 60s. And there has to be an effective deterrent for companies to otherwise they will use and abuse you and exploit your time. And it is dangerous for workers to not have that time. It is unhealthy for workers to not have that time. Uh, you know, we fought for the eight hour day and a 40 hour work week a hundred years ago. And we have folks like yourself who are out there doing 60 hour weeks. Uh, and it's just really, it, it's an issue that I think is so widespread. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, having a union is so important. Being able to address this, to, to come to the table with management and really bargain over your time and what the value of your time uh, and, and the benefits that you should receive for your time, I think that's huge. Uh, and so one question that we got from uh, one of my IATSE 900 brothers uh, was for you, Matthew, which was about the video game industry. And, our, you know, because unionization is so new in the video game industry, you may not have a lot of insight here yet, but I'm curious, are there any companies that have been pro-union or, you know, kind of uh, at least positive neutral uh, in this process? Or what about the reverse? Have there been any companies in the video game industry that have like been really notoriously anti-union uh, that we should know about? And not to put you in a delicate situation where, you know, obviously if you don't want to speak about it or if there there's some concerns there, you know, I don't want you to say anything that you don't feel comfortable saying. But uh, we did get that question about kind of like the lay of the land in, in the video game industry with unions. Uh, I'm just trying to remember specific names. Um, I, there was uh, one company recently where their QA department had unionized. And uh, their contracts ran out and the company decided just not to renew those contracts. Um, and that's kind of one of those things where it's hard to tell if that's like anti, like strictly anti-union or if that's just, you know, the game industry as a whole, you know, like just how they operate things. We'd had so many layoffs in the past like month and a half throughout, you know, the, the entire industry. So many companies have let go of so many people. But that's kind of been the environment here for like the past 20 years. Um, when I started in the industry, I thought every year I was going to get let go because you would just constantly get stories about this sort of stuff. Right. Um, so at a certain point, it's not really that a lot of the companies are anti-union as much as they are designed to be anti-employee. When And when they're designed to be anti-employee, um, they just kind of end up being anti-union. Um, as far as companies that have been open and receptive to it, I vaguely recall uh, Double Fine, uh, the company that does um, Psychonauts. Um, they did that like heavy metal, like <laughs> action RPG strategy game. I, okay. I vaguely remember uh, the CEO or founder or whatever uh, talking very favorably about unions and how the industry has to unionize. And then a lot of us just talking about like, yeah, but Double Fine's not unionized. That's a really strong statement to make when, you know, your company, you know, is not unionized. 
So for the industry as a whole, I'd say probably negative. Yeah, you just touched on something real interesting there, which is like, you know, you've got these companies that don't always practice what they preach. You have some companies that put out progressive rhetoric. Um, You know, we've seen that like in the nonprofit industry. We've seen some really tough campaigns in the nonprofit industry where these employers that are ostensibly progressive and like, well, in some cases, even say pro-union things in their programming. But it's sometimes a different story when it's their own employees that, that start to organize. Um, but something else that you, you talked about in terms of the industry itself and <clears throat> how it is really geared against the employees, to me, speaks to the need for unionization. Um, and, and when you talk about layoffs and and how persistent those can be and the persistent fear of layoffs you know I, I think about how in a union contract you can fight for protections around layoffs even if it's as as little as just getting adequate notice right so that you don't have that scenario happen to you again where you walk in to work one day and you're told well some of you all are not coming back and you'll know by the end of today you know that kind of situation is just really not acceptable for working people to, to experience. Um, so whether it's getting an adequate notice in advance, getting severance packages, getting protections from layoffs, uh, protecting your time and the work hours and overtime, there, there are just so many reasons why, whether you're in the VFX industry, the video games industry, or so many other industries, why a union is good <laughs> and why a union is necessary to make your lives better. Uh, and so I, I really appreciate both of y'all for, for your courage and, and for paving the way for folks in IATSE and for workers across the country. And I, I wanted to give y'all a chance if, and to see, do you have a question for your other panelists here uh, about the campaign that they experienced? Um, so I was just curious, Anna, Matthew, if, if either y'all had a question for the other one. Uh, I do, if if possible. Uh, so we're in our very, very early stages of the negotiation committee. Um, and I was wondering if you guys have hit that stage yet and what you're doing to uh, prepare, because we're in that part and I'm, you know, finding my footing, but it is, it's intimidating, definitely. And, and I was wondering what that was like for you guys. I was going to ask you the same thing. I think we've been operating <laughs> on the same timeline. No, literally, <laughs> one of the weird parts of having this campaign so close to you guys and within the same parent organizations the whole time, we're like, oh, they're kind of stealing the wind from our sails because that's exciting, all the Marvel stuff. But it's been really amazing just like, oh, no, like a lot of these articles are like kind of putting us together or putting us in the context of like larger movements. So it's always just really interesting going like, oh, yeah, it's not just our company. It's every company. So. Hell yeah. Absolutely. And I I hope we can link arms in this as we go, especially since we're on the same page that we can, you know, really take these steps together and battle the intimidating wall of of the negotiation committee. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I really hope that, too. I, I think there's just a, a lot of strength and collaboration uh, and so, yeah, I definitely encourage y'all to to be in collaboration as much as possible and, and bounce ideas off each other and learn from each other and, and have each other's back. Um, I think that's huge. And it has been really cool as an IATSE member to see this happening. Um, 
to have Marvel, Disney, and a video game company all within the same little time period has just been really exciting. Um, one of my roles with the local 900 is political coordinator, and so I give a report every month basically talking about what, what are, what's happening in IATSE. And it's been really exciting to share with our members these kind of wins, you know, to win unanimously, to be the first union in the particular industry. It's just huge. And it really, I think, empowers other workers to realize it's not just me. I'm not alone. There are other folks who feel this way and there are other folks who are doing something about it. Uh, and I love that. So I wanted to wrap up here and just give each of y'all a chance to kind of give some parting words about uh, the campaign, anything you've learned, anything you want to share with fellow IATSE members, or just working folks more broadly about labor organizing and your experience? Uh, I would just say that, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about any one company. It's about bringing the VFX workers up onto the same tier as the majority of the industry. And just send out a thanks to all of the other departments who have paved the way for us to be able to do this and made our next steps so straightforward because they've allowed us to look out for what we need to look out for. And I think they're going to allow us to get what we deserve at the end of the day. And Matthew, and how about I, you? I don't know. I guess I would say I'm just really excited to see what the next few years are going to be like. Uh, it's been a meteoric like rise in the number of unions across so many different industries. And I'm just, you know, as much as work as we're putting into our own union and as much work as we're putting into our own uh, negotiations, we're putting just as much work into just looking and talking to people at the, you know, with the industry at large. Um, and I'm just really excited to see what comes by, out of all this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I did think of one last question. I, I would be remiss <clears throat> if I didn't ask you all before I let y'all go. Uh, any cool projects that you're working on? Uh, so Anna, Marvel VFX, you got any cool project that you're about to be assigned to? Not at the moment. Right now, I think we're mostly putting all of our solidarity and support behind SAG as we wait for them to get what they deserve so that we can get the industry up and running again. Copy Unfortunately, that. sorry, I don't have anything exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, how about you? Uh, I think most of the stuff I'm on is NDA. Uh, I think the last Copy project that. that came out was for like the Paw Patrol movie. So Go, go see the Paw Patrol movie, I guess. <laughs> well, I, hey, I just want to say again that I appreciate y'all's time, uh, making some time to talk with the Valley Labor Report this morning. Um, it means a lot to us and it means a lot to me as, um, you know, just as, as someone who is a member of the union and as someone who wants to see unions grow, to know that y'all are doing this in new areas uh, really means a lot. So I appreciate it. Uh, and y'all keep up the good work. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. All right, folks. That was a great conversation. Enjoyed uh, hearing from them. It's always good to see industries um, industries uh, start to unionize. Uh, so yeah. we're looking for um, not only unionization, but good contracts in that industry. Here That's soon. right. Yeah. I, 
that's always going to be, uh, you know, one of the interesting things to see is when you get to bargaining time. But um, I just I, I love that that they are breaking new ground in those areas because the video game industry desperately needs unions. Um, and the VFX industry, like you mentioned at the onset of the interview, just this pocket of non-union workforce that's been easily exploited as a result. Uh, so shout out to both of them. Shout out to IATSE for really pursuing this new organizing. It's necessary. Uh, tell folks about Shop Talk, Adam. Oh, okay. Sure. I can do that. Uh, so Shop Talk is our Thursday morning episode. Uh, started back in the spring. It is a solo project that I do. Um, and since we started in the spring, I've been doing a monthly labor history series where I talk about what happened each day in labor history with a particular emphasis on the South. Um, I know that's not everyone's cup of tea, but we do have some fans of that particular uh, series who, who seem to really dig that and look forward to it every month. I've talked about educator organizing and strikes in Alabama busted out my old AEA history textbook, uh, talked about the Alabama cooperative town founded by the Knights of Labor called Powderly. I've done a, uh, some different training episodes. So labor uh, Shop Talk is all about labor education, history, and training. Um, and some of the training we've done would be new employee orientations, effective flyers, knowing your rights as a union member, and it's not just me. Uh, I've had on some really great guests on Shop Talk. A couple weeks ago, I had on Erica from the Workplace Justice Project in New Orleans, our Tennessee sister, Vonda McDaniel, who was on, uh, who was listening this morning. She joined to talk about labor councils. Uh, a friend of the show, Chris Townsend, has been on to talk about his work getting lost classics of the labor movement back in print. Longtime labor organizer Bill Berry joined to talk about closing up the open shop. Courtney from Labor Notes joined to talk about race and labor, which I really enjoyed. And that's just one of the Labor Notes episodes we've done. Every, every month, I have a special uh, Labor Notes-themed episode where we talk to someone from Labor Notes or talk about an article from Labor Notes. Uh, we just work with them to put together something every month. So we've also talked with Ellen David Friedman about the training she does with them called When Your Union Breaks Your Heart. Uh, we've had on Joe Demanuel Hall about Stewart's Corner. We've had the Labor Radio Podcast Network guys on the show, and these are just some of the episodes. So I definitely encourage you to check out our Shop Talk playlist on our YouTube channel, as well as the back catalog of podcasts. It does come out as its own podcast every week. Uh, so again, if you're looking for any labor education, history, or training, hopefully you'll find some stuff that's useful. Unlike our Saturday show, it's not as newsy, so... Um, you know, it's it's one of those things you can go back to uh, as it's relevant, as it's useful for you. And I've got some good ones coming up. Uh, quick programming note, next week I'll be talking with Lisa from Labor Notes about 10-minute meetings inspired by the UAWD. Uh, this one will actually be at 10.30. Normally we air at 9.30 a.m. Central Time on Thursday mornings. This one is going to be at 10.30. Um, and then I'll, I'll have a, a couple of collaborations with Jacob here that we're, we've got in the works uh, regarding some UAW history. Uh, I've got Sarah from Strike for Our Rights coming on in November. I've got uh, November Labor History. So, yeah, I've got some good episodes planned. And um, we just really wanted to lift up Shop Talk and make sure that all of our listeners were aware of it. 
uh, and let us know your ideas. If you have particular areas of, of training or education or history that you're interested in and that you want to learn more about, hit us up. Let me know uh, because I, I want to make it useful for folks. I want it to be educational for folks. Um, and so we do have a couple clips from Shop Talk that I wanted to play just to give you all a taste of kind of what we've been talking about over the past couple weeks. The idea was that um, <clears throat> the ability to say do democracy, to run democratic institutions is a skill set, right? You right. have to be able to, right? Yeah, yeah. you have to be able to uh, run meetings. You have to be able to build consensus, right? You have to be able to uh, delegate tasks and follow up on them, right? <clears throat> There's a lot of organizational skills required. So that's basically what we teach the kids and the kids help run the camp with us um, or, or not help. I mean, it's just, we run it uh, as a consensus model with the kids. So that includes off season there. They are in meetings, making decisions about budget, about uh, timing, about recruitment, about staff personnel. They interview our staff. Right. Um, so all the major decisions, they are, um, an equal part of, and like I said, you know, we use a consensus model. So um, that is teaching them the skill set required to create the, and run their own organizations, right? As they identify problems in the world that they want to solve, they're going to have the ability to organize people to address them. So that, and the camp's name is Lamplight. Um, and again, it's in Gunnersville. So that was this week with Kevin Burns from the Sound Mountain Cooperative Education Center. Really enjoyed that conversation. We talked about co-ops. We talked about employee ownership. And we talked about that summer camp that he's involved with, Lamplight, uh, that is really cool and helping young folks practice democracy. I love that. Uh, and as I mentioned, I had uh, Erica from the New Orleans Workplace Justice Project on the show a couple weeks ago and really enjoyed that conversation as well. You want to ask your employer three things. One, how much are you going to be paid? Um, you know, is it and is it going to be by the hour? Is it going to be by the day? Is it going to be the, by the week? Um, usually in those first jobs, oftentimes it's an hour. So if you're getting paid $10 an hour, you want to know you're getting paid $10 an hour. Uh, the second thing you want to know is how are you going to be paid? Are you going to be paid by check? Are you going to be paid by cash, which is legal in Louisiana? And if you are being paid in cash, please ask for a receipt. Um, are you going to be paid, you know, and how often? Um, and then the, the the last thing you really need to, the third thing, not the last thing, the third thing you really need to know is who is your employer? Who's your boss? Who's your supervisor? Who has authority over your employment? And also, who are you actually working for? We have so many workers who come into us who, you know, sometimes are given a shirt by their employer with the name on it, but turns out that's not actually who the employer is. Um, so the reason to ask these th three things is is that they're very important things to know. And the other is if you, if the person you're talking to, the manager, your supervisor, whoever it is, is a little squirrely about that, that's a sign that, you know, do this job, but maybe start looking for another one. Because employers that aren't willing to be upfront about, about those basic conditions of employment are, you know, that's a red flag that there might be trouble down the road.
So that was three things that you needed to know about the a new job. And also we had one right that you might not have. The thing that you don't have um, if you don't have a, a if you don't have a minimum wage law or if you don't have a state law that provides for this is the thing that we see is first of all, if you work for a small enough employer, you might not have a right to a minimum wage at all. Although most employers we find at least honor the federal minimum wage of seven twenty five, even if maybe they're not. But there is specific jurisdiction. There's specific jurisdictional requirements for employers to be bound by all of the terms of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And the one that we come across the most is not the minimum wage, it's the overtime provisions. So the example that we have had it before with clients is you work for workers who work for a small restaurant, um, it doesn't meet the jurisdictional requirement of $500,000 in gross sales for all of its employees to be covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. And if you work in the back of the house as a dishwasher um, and you're making $7.25 and they have you work $50, 50 hours a week, you don't have any right to overtime because you're not covered by the federal law that says you have to get overtime. Um, and we don't have any state provisions uh, for overtime because we don't have a state minimum wage law and we don't have any provisions for overtime. So it's just something to be aware of um, you know, unfortunately, there's nothing we can really do about it except to keep fighting to try to get a minimum wage and overtime law that would be enforceable at the state level. But it is just something to know. And, you you know, it's not one of those things you're going to ask on the first day because most employers don't even know, small employers don't even know if they're covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. But just something to be aware of that um, if you work on those in those small margin industries or, you know, for sort of fly-by-night or smaller employers, you might not even have the basic protections of federal law. And it wasn't just bad news, though. There was at least one positive right that you have that Erica discussed. One thing that's really important, especially for us down south, because we don't think about it so much, we have very low union density. And people tend to think of organizing rights, the right to act together with your with your co-workers as only coming in the union context. But I have heard on more than one occasion from our uh, colleagues at the National Labor Relations Board that they are looking for cases of protected concerted activity. So if you are a worker, or you and your co-workers have concerns about conditions at work, about how you're being paid, about what you're being told about your working conditions, and any of you go either as a group or one of you specifically on behalf of the group, that is a protected right. Um, and your employer should not, it is illegal for your employer to take, to take action against you for that. Doesn't mean that they won't, but it is a violation. It is potentially a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. So organizing together is protected. If your employer tells you, you're not allowed to talk to your coworkers about how much you make and who makes more. That is not true. That is a protected right. And so you should understand that talking to your coworkers, acting together for your own benefit is a right that you have under federal labor law. So there's just a little bit of what we talk about on Shop Talk. 
labor education, history, and training. Check it out every Thursday morning uh, on YouTube and Facebook. You can also check it out later as a podcast. Uh, and again, I appreciate everyone who tunes in. I appreciate all the good ideas folks have sent me. And if you do have good ideas, send them my way. All right. And uh, up next, we have Taylor Barnes. I believe she's in the Zoom now, right? Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Taylor Barnes is a uh, she has been for a long time a freelance reporter. She's been doing a lot of stuff for Inkstick Media, so I'm not sure if she's on staff with them or not. Um, But particularly, she is on the defense beat. Uh, So we met a few years ago now when she was doing some reporting on Huntsville. And she's got a couple of new stories out uh, that she's put in a lot of work on. And so we're excited to um, have her share that with y'all. Taylor, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, it's great to see you again. Um, And so are you staff with Inkstick Media or are you freelancing for them? Yeah. No, thanks for asking. So nowadays I am indeed staff and uh, I was freelance for 12, 13 years. And so being a freelancer for so long, I think is goes hand in hand with my interest in labor stories. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I imagine that'll that'll give you some uh, uh, personal experience with uh, precarity for sure. Um, So uh, your most recent story is, uh, uh, like I said, out in Inkstick Media. Uh, Definitely, you're going to want to check it out. Uh, The title is Dying to Make Hypersonic Missiles in Utah. Uh, What is this story about? So this story dates back to January of this year when a colleague sent me a tip. So as you mentioned, you know, I cover the defense industry. I really cover the people and places tied up in, you know, the United States, uh, nearly $1 trillion national security budget. And in the workplaces, of course. Um, so back in January, a colleague sent me a tip and said, Taylor, there was a death of two workers at a Northrop Grumman plant in Utah, and the company is being extremely tight-lipped about it. Um, so Northrop Grumman is one of the top five defense contractors in the U.S. And sort of in my field, they're called the big five, the top contractors that really dominate the defense contracting market. Um, and Utah is a really important place for uh, both Northrop Grumman and the defense industry in general. It's uh, like Huntsville, uh, mm-hmm. missile and rocket hub. Um, and so, yeah, the, the colleague sent me that tip, but then the company didn't even release the men's name. They said nothing about the circumstances of the death. Mm-hmm. And so, and nothing on local news. There was a brief statement from the company saying out of respect for the workers, families were not releasing their names. So I had to start digging through public records. I requested police reports. I requested OSHA reports. A lot of them took a long time to be made public. Um, I finally reached out to the families. I found their names hidden, buried in these reports. Um, I reached out to a coworker and really found out where families told me that, no, that was not their wishes not to be named. That was the company's. And that sort of uh, Mm. suppressed media coverage um, and kept them sort of off the public radar and after one of, reports, the mothers of one of these people said it, it, you mentioned in your piece that she said that she felt really um you know disconcerted with the yeah. uh with the secrecy yeah. around her son's name yeah so i have to say when i when i saw the statement from the company saying out of respect for the workers we're not releasing their name that kind of already made my antenna go up because mm-hmm. you know it's it's plausible maybe maybe indeed the families wanted privacy but generally if your loved one dies you and your family you know your families and friends know about it and most people want their loved one who dies to be remembered and be remembered as a person with a name. 
Um, so yeah, the mother of the, one of the men who was killed on the job told me that she really didn't like the secrecy and it sort of may, it was a bit of salt in the wound because it, it came with this implication that her son had done something wrong as though he mm. were responsible for his own death. Um, when that's not what OSHA would say after a six month investigation, OSHA would say the exact opposite. They use their uh, most serious classification in the death, which is called willful serious. Mm. Um, and it boils down to the men were in a confined space uh, where argon gas was known to leak and they had no protective gear, no breathing apparatus, no, mm. you know, pulley harness system to get them out of danger. Um, and argon gas will displace oxygen. It's a, that's the purpose of it in welding. Um, and, you know, asphyxiated the men in just a matter of seconds. Mm. And, uh, and just to just to kind of illustrate, I, I found th- this was just stunning. Um, just to illustrate how quickly this happens, you um, recounted in your piece how you know after a certain time, some of their coworkers were like, "Hey, you know, where are these where are these two folks?" And um, and so they start looking around, and they you know through a couple of clues, they figure out, "Oh, they're down here in this." confined space and so they go down to to look for them and uh i do they actually i can't uh, you can tell me if they get to the bottom or if they don't but after you said just a few seconds this person starts feeling dizzy he crawls up out of the hole and he gasping he can't he can barely breathe and he has to be pulled away uh to get medical treatment i think it's extraordinary, exactly. So the two co-workers who noticed that they didn't show up in the locker room and the break room go looking for them and then go down to the area they call the pit, uh, which is below an autoclave. And this is literally underground. So again, this oxygen, this uh, gas, argon, is heavier than air mm. and will displace air. And here they are in an underground space where argon is leaking. Um, and the two co-workers went to go went looking for them. And one uh, just told him, told police that he, uh, he was in distress um, because he was gasping for air and trying to get out of the space where his coworkers had just suffocated. Um, it's a horrible story. And I, I, you know, I imagine plenty of your listeners who might even be familiar with this gas and familiar with confined space entry will know that in industrial workspaces, sort of confined space entry is a whole area of sort of study and of training. This is not something you take lightly. Um, OSHA defines confined spaces in a few different ways, one of them being a space that, that's not meant to be continually inhabited, one a space that has um, a risk of oxygen deprivation, which mm-hmm. is clearly what's going on here. And sort of the heart of what went wrong at this workplace was um, the the workplace decertified the area as a confined space, and therefore they didn't put in the, they didn't have to act on the sort of safety measures like giving them supplied air or having some sort of system to retrieve them um yeah these instead these workers just walked down in their normal clothes into the confined space and asphyxiated in a matter of seconds mm, mm, mm. and so the the fact that they they decertified it so it used to be uh an area yeah. where the company required these type of precautions and they took it away yeah. have you been able to figure out like what it was that made them feel like oh you know no we don't have to do this anymore that's the really curious thing. There's nothing in the OSHA report about it. And the company never answered either my request for comment nor actual investigators um, saying, look, look, why did you decertify this as a confined space? And, and according to the OSHA report, the company provided no documentation about who made that call. Were they a qualified person to make the call? 
Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, I spent, I mean, from the time I heard about the incident onward, I have asked the company for comment so many times by phone call, by email. Um, and yeah, got no answer, nor did the OSHA investigators. Mm. And so you said that the OSHA investigators said that this was, this was willful and serious. What yeah. does, what does that mean? What did they find? Why did they come to that conclusion? Yeah. So willful and serious, I should note. So this was the result of the six month OSHA investigation. Um, and willful and serious meant the company knew this was a hazardous space. It knew this, you know, this was at one point indeed a, what they called a permit required space, um, and simply removed the requirement to, you know, have safety measures and safety procedures to go into it. Um, yeah. And the company, of course, you, you know, had six months to prove to OSHA otherwise, and nothing in the report indicates that, you know, why they removed the requirement, what they were doing to, you know, enforce safety, uh, otherwise, I should note that the company is appealing. However, neither OSHA nor the company gave me any information on their appeal. And I was told by a workplace safety expert that in cases of deaths like this, that a company always appeal, even if there really is no substance to it. And that it's a way of dragging out the case and sort of exhausting the families. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, uh, and, and so, you know, they died and one of the, one of the things that the supervisor tried to tell uh, the the mother of one of these people uh, was that her son was a hero uh, for doing the work that he did. Can you talk to us about the work the work that he did and and you know the extent to which uh, you know hit the the you know the the things that he created have actually been used, right? So this astounded me. The The mother of the younger worker of the pair that were killed told me that a, a supervisor approached her and said, your, your son is a hero on the other side of this life because he died defending our country because he was making weapons. He was, the supervisor told her that he was making hypersonic missiles. Um, so I asked Northrop Grumman for more information. You know, what type of hypersonic missiles? Can you give me any more information on what these missiles do? But what it's worth noting is that uh, hypersonic missiles refer to sort of a, a category of an emerging technology in the military space that, as of now, the the military hasn't even officially incorporated into its um, you know into its arsenal. It's still a prototype. So mm. um, it would be quite hard for the supervisor to have told her quite you know exactly how. Um, exactly how these weapons defend the U.S. when the military itself doesn't have an official mission for them. Um, so, you know, maybe this will be a weapon that's in the arsenal of tomorrow, or maybe it will be like so many others discarded in sort of the dustbin of uh, discarded weapons of yesteryear. I was blown away, though. I was I was blown away that the supervisor told her that um, in, you know, what would what would sound like an attempt sort of to comfort her or to diminish mm. the death. Um, but uh, the, the, the irony of telling somebody that, you know, uh, that, you know, you work in the defense industry to, you know, defend the nation, but you are, well, we won't, can't defend you on the job against an argon gas leak just was extraordinary to me. And that, I mean, that sort of kind of rhetoric has not even been relegated to, you know, people uh, in the defense industry who have these dangerous kind of jobs. There's been a lot of, especially since the pandemic started, a lot of attempt to, you know, shower workers with praise so that they don't have to provide, you know, actually provide material things for the workers like higher wages or or safer working conditions, you know, in this case would have been the operative, uh, would have been the operative thing to do for a hero. 
uh, to make sure that the spaces that they go into are not filled with a gas that'll asphyxiate you in seconds. Absolutely. And just to state the obvious, these these men didn't sign up. They didn't join the military. They didn't Mm. sign up to, you know, they weren't a Navy SEAL. They were doing, you know, 12-hour shifts at a factory. This was their day job. They were not signing up to die on the job in, you know, supposedly defending the nation doing so. And so were they they unionized at this plant? So I was told the plant, so as you know, Utah is a right-to-work state, so therefore even if it is unionized, uh, people will have the option to pretty, you know, to choose not to join. And I was told this plant had a small representation of the steel workers, but that the two men and a lot of other sort of uh, a lot of other people on the plant were not uh, union members. And Utah, so they I were... have not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So the th- meaning that they were not in the bargaining unit represented by the steel workers, or meaning that they were represented but were not members. They were. That's a good question. I don't. I don't believe. At least they were not um they were not members. But because I there buy, are yeah. there are plants that have, you know, the uh you know, different you know, the the janitorial staff may be, you know, unionized with the right. SEIU. And so, you know, the SEIU wouldn't represent a machine worker, right? If right. that was the case right. of the of the facility. So um so it right. could be it, you know, and that and I'd I'd be interested in learning that. It could be that the steel workers represent, you know, I don't know, the tool and die workers or something and, yeah. and not whatever they did. Um yeah. so No, that's but, a good question. And I, I I know at least they were not members um, but I don't know, you know, what what led that to happen. And so, you know, that uh, at least they said if it was small representation, then presumably it, whether or not their bargaining unit was represented, uh, it doesn't sound like the union represents everybody in that facility. And that kind of goes right. into your next um, you, you, yeah. the or, or the piece that you put out a couple of months back now about unions right. in the defense industry and how they have been. Um, really remarkably decimated over the past, you know, few decades. Can you talk to us about that? Absolutely. I'm I'm really happy to get to talk about this piece. Um, yeah, you can find it on Inkstick Media. I think it's called um, uh, Union Rates Decline at Top Defense Contractors. So uh, I got a few tips with, uh, with this piece. Really, the, uh, let me first go back. The motivation to do this this reporting was kind of hearing in general that oh, defense contractors are highly unionized. And I thought, really, I don't know. I, I speak with workers in these places, and I, I get the impression that's not the case. And my after sort of reporting out the story, finding the data, speaking with the individual workers, I my my conclusion is that impression was once true, but it's just several decades out of date and hasn't really been mm. updated. Um, so I got a tip that um, in an SEC filing that publicly traded companies have to file called a Form 10K, they often will report their uh, their union figures in a rough way. It will say something like, we have a workforce of 100,000 people and 19,000 of them are represented by you know collective bargaining unions. Um, so I gathered all of that data for the top five defense contractors. And I had a really nice breakthrough, which was um, I wanted to have no historical figures um, but the, it's only, you know, uh, those, those forms you can find online pretty easily through maybe 2000 or so. Um, but I wanted to go back even further than that. And I got access to a very specialized archive of corporate documents that allowed me to dig back even further, um, to see what that data was like. Um, and so for example, um, 
at Lockheed Martin, which is the largest uh, defense contractor in the U.S. and in the world, 69% of workers at least were unionized in 1971. Wow. And nowadays that number is just 19%. Um, and that's still, quote, high for the defense industry, because at Northrop Grumman, the company that I just mentioned, just 4% of workers are unionized. That, that figure blew me away um, because these are, you know, these are manufacturers. These are supposed to be the kind of workplaces that lend themselves to organizing. Um, and in a variety of ways that we document in the piece, they really have both stealthily and sometimes not so stealthily bust their unions over time. Mm, right. And yeah, what are some of the ways that they have uh, that they've been able to get away from uh, union membership? Yeah. So one that, uh, that you know, workers and labor figures would tell me about, of course, was subcontracting. Mm. Um, so really just getting people off their books, um, which was uh, the the workers at the Lockheed Martin plant in Marietta, a suburb of Atlanta, told me that was one way that the, the company had been just stealthily chipping away at their membership for year after year. And then it has sort of a, it becomes sort of a vicious cycle downward because then the union is just in defensive mode trying to convince the remaining members it's still worth it to participate. They showed me their union hall that they said used to have, you know, 3,000 people or more and that their union elections back in the 70s would be taped a three-day affair. Um, and nowadays they say on a good, you know, an average month, they have maybe 25 people show up to their meetings um, mm. so subcontracting was a big one. Another force is sort of the white collarization of, um, of the defense industry. This is also a figure you can find in the company's form 10 Ks. They'll report their number of engineers, their number of scientists, and you can track over time. Um, I have the figure in my piece, but I'd have to pull it back up. But, you know, that number was maybe in the teens or twenties or so back in the seventies. And now that number is sort of over 50%. Um, and even, of course, there 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 exists one, at least one large white collar union at a major defense contractor um, at Boeing in Washington State. But in general, um, union activity at defense contractors is a is a blue collar affair. So, sort of the white collarization in general of the work of the workforce has also um, pushed those numbers down. And finally, what they are doing in a you know very major way, which is moving into right to work states, including and very particularly here in the South. Um, and in Utah, which I also just mentioned. And so, uh, you know, the decline of unionization, were you able to track in your piece? I, I can't remember any uh, any discernible correlations. I know that, you know, it's not like a rigorous kind of peer reviewed study. And so there's not, you know, it'd be difficult to to say definitively that there's a cause. But have, were you able to track any correlation to in, you know, workplace incidents or, uh, you know, Compensation, healthcare, retirement packages, anything like that, with the decline of unionization in these uh, 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 companies. Yeah, well, at least with compensation, it's, it's actually quite remarkable that there is data on compensation in the defense industry that comes from an industry group called the National Defense Industrial Association, and they show it's about the that real, you know, real salaries, inflation-adjusted salaries, average salaries in the defense industry have gone down since the '80s, something like twenty percent, which is extremely remarkable because it's, you know, uh, the industry is getting more white collar, but for some reason the salaries are going down. Mm. Um, and is that is that a 20% adjusted for inflation or is that actually um adjusted for inflation okay um which is really remarkable yeah. um, which which kind of gets back to how I I wanted to introduce the story which is I think our our understandings of employment in the defense industry are kind of you know uh, a little bit stuck in the past and just need some mm. updating because indeed I mean I I've, I've heard this from workers I've read this in the literature 
in a time like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, this was a highly unionized, this was a, a really good job to have. And I think the contractors have kept up that sort of good job creation rhetoric without having much accountability or scrutiny for the way that it just isn't the job it used to be, um, you know, back in the day. And I, I should add, I mean, there are still, you know, some members who are making good salaries and who are making good mm -hmm. livings inside the industry. I, I spoke with some workers at the Lockheed plant in Marietta, um, you know, who described to me that, you know, the very, you know, the very livable pensions they will have when they uh, retire in a few years. But guess what? The company cut the pensions back in like 2011 or something. So they know mm -hmm. the new hires just aren't going to have the life that they had. Um, so I sort of think it's important to draw out the way that a job at a defense contractor, especially for, for new entrants, just really isn't what it used to be. The union and, and Marietta have told me that they, I mean, their turnover is, uh, is, is enormous and they're just constantly onboarding people, which then of course, in the process also weakens the union to have, you know, your young people and your new entrants, you know, leaving for a job at Delta airlines as soon as it comes up. Mm, right. Right. And so the, um, you know, the 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 way that you ended your piece about the defense industry unions is, uh, you know, interestingly, especially with the UAW being in the conversation so much, you know, the, a lot of the UAW conversation is about a just transition. And in that context, we're talking about transitioning from gas powered automobiles to electric powered automobiles. Um, but you mentioned that there's, you know, interest in the defense unions in a just transition from a, you know, war production, you know, pr producing right. hypersonic missiles that may or may not ever be used. And then honestly, if, if they're ever used, it'd probably be, you know, detrimental to the human race, <laughs> like just not good, just not good for people uh, to use these things. And so, you know, there is there there's some interest in some of these uh, defense unions in, you know, saying like, hey, look, uh, maybe we should our labor should be doing something that's like useful <laughs> instead <laughs> and and, you yeah. know, making, you know, a green, a more green economy. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And sort of just to detail that the the largest union by far in amongst defense contractors is the machinist union. Um, they told me that of their membership of about 600,000, about 60,000 at their last sort of survey were in, uh, were in defense. And that can include many jobs are in some way like a hybrid job. So for example, if you're working at Pratt and Whitney, you're, you know, you're making engines both for the military and for commercial use. Um, whereas, you know, if you're, um, yeah, certain jobs, if you're at the F-35 plant, that's, you're pretty much in an exclusively military job. Um, but yeah, the, the machinists themselves have, you know, are, have recognized that they need to and already are diversifying their membership as the, the mm -hmm. face of, you know, a union worker changes in America. So they told me they were going into everything from legal aid nonprofits to libraries to healthcare workers. And I put this in our newsletter just, um, I think it was just last week. They um, now have their, uh, their, their, what I believe is their first campaign at an electric vehicle plant in Illinois. Um, so yeah, it's remarkable. And it, that sort of gets to what I've heard when I've spoken with, uh, defense workers. And when I've spoken with, you know, uh, union leadership is that, you know, um, yeah, people, people may, they, they care about their job and they care about what they're doing at the end of the day and what, what the product will be used for. But most immediately they care about having a good job. <laughs> and, uh, and when Lockheed Martin, you know, cuts your pensions and when you're, you know, doing backbreaking labor and when you're working 12 hour shifts and you are, you know, asphyxiated by argon gas, like at a certain point, you know, there's, yeah, there's more questions about what is a good job. 
Um, and yeah, so I, I feel like when I've, when I've spoken with workers, they, you know, many may say, yes, I, I would like to have hypersonic missiles for X, Y, Z reason. And I, I like hearing that and I want to hear why. But also what I, what I hear so much in the foreground and so saliently is really, I want to have a good job. I want to support my mm. family. I don't want to retire in poverty. Um, right. And I think that's, yeah, I, I think that hopefully both of our stories start to uh, tell the story of what that looks like. Yep, absolutely. Um, so, uh, Taylor, really appreciate your time. Uh, is there anything else that, that you think, you know, uh, you'd want to leave us with before we let you go? Thank you very much for having me on. And I'm, yeah, uh, I'm thrilled to come on to Huntsville and basically send me any tips. I'm all, I'm all ears always for labor stories. That's exactly how I heard about the deaths of the workers at Northrop Grumman. Um, so I'm T Barnes, T-B-A-R-N-E-S at inkstickmedia.com. And we have a newsletter that I'm, I'm very grateful has gotten pretty popular called Military Industrial America on Substack. So also, if you just want something in newsletter like, hey, Taylor, please highlight my organizing Awesome. Great. Well, we'll keep that in mind. Taylor, thanks for uh, coming on again. Appreciate it. Yep. Uh, Taylor Barnes, check her out. Subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, read Inkstick Media. We have a caller on the line. Let's bring them into the... Uh, let's bring them on the air. The caller is from a 989 area code. Uh, 989 area code. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, Jacob, this is Brandy Booth. How are you doing? Brandy Booth. That I'm glad yeah. you called in. I saw you in the chat. Uh, glad you were able to uh, make it uh, and, and watch us live, folks. Brandy Booth is, and I meant to bring your books and, and give well, a copy to everybody. Really, that's not really why I, I'm calling today. I'm a, um, we can do that at some other time. I'm, I'm producing a little video that I'll send you guys and you know, we can mention it now, but um, I just wanted to say that I'm, you know, the way that you guys are going about your information, I, I appreciate it. I, you're, I learn a lot. I've been in the union here in um, Bay City and Saginaw for 30 years. I worked as a production employee. I've worked in skilled trades as a millwright welder. And I was in the union um, as a committee man, contract negotiator for Saginaw Steering Gear for almost 10 years which uh, ultimately got sold to the Chinese government. Mm. And uh, so we've, we've been through a lot up here. I'm currently at Bay City Powertrain up there, General Motors, just uh, waiting to see. You know, we haven't been called out to strike yet, but we walked for 40 days in uh, 2019. We're ready to do it again. But I wanted to point out one thing about the, the General Motors situation and, you know, just the, the way that the government loans worked back then. I was, I was a big... Um, that's pretty much when I was in the union, when all that bankruptcy happened and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I watched us, um, they took those loans and the American people really don't realize that there was like $12.5 billion from those loans that was like written off as legacy costs. And it was, mm. you know, other things they were, um, they said, well, you didn't keep the stock long enough for us to, you know, for it to mature. So the American taxpayer took a $12.5 billion loss on those loans. But when you think about it, when have you ever taken, as an American taxpayer, when have you ever taken a loan out where you didn't have to pay the whole thing back, principal plus the interest? So, I mean, a lot of these people, when you look at it, 
they're saying, well, these corporations are doing well and everything. But if you look at the way that um, the standard of living, not only for union people, but for everybody in the area, the standard of living has gone down over the last decade at the same time with corporate profits have soared, not only in the auto industry, but in it, all across the board, corporate America, like, like Amazon, like, you know, different things like that. These profits continue to soar. And although we're really proud to be a part of creating profits like that, um, it's kind of sad that, you know, because they have made all those profits, not much of that money has made it back into the American economy. Mm. You know what I mean? But when you get auto worker wages that are better and, you know, that those support local economic jobs. Like when COVID came around, we were patronizing our local businesses because those people were fighting to stay alive, yep. you know, and we were, we were totally supporting them. And that's why when we, you know, we went out in 2019, they supported us. We supported them during the pandemic, and now the, they're really coming. Despite what you see on some of the news, um, these people are really coming around the UAW, and they realize where that money is going, and they realize when the money comes back into our economy that that's the, you know. But so anyhow, I just wanted to share that little perspective as far as the, you know, I mean, we, we kind of feel like even if they put money in the infrastructure, if they want to go to electric cars, come to us and show us as part of this, how we can, you know, the UAW can help them make our infrastructure better. Mm. You know what I mean? Let's right. put the money back into America that comes out of America. That's, that's our whole point pretty much behind it. So, yeah, anyhow. absolutely. I actually had somebody just, just yesterday, you know, talking to me and asking, you know, does the UAW like, are they anti electric vehicles or whatever? You know, is that, that's what I'm hearing on the news. I hear that the UAW, they hate electric vehicles and it's like, no, well, no, they don't. They I just, they hate that this, electric vehicles are being used to, to, to create a race to the bottom. Yeah. Uh, there, I've, I've got a different kind of opinion on that because I've worked, I worked the last decade or more in an internal engines components plant. Mm, we make mm -hmm. camshafts, we make, you know, and that our feeling in our plant, like that's going to completely wipe us out. There will be no more powertrain units. And, mm. you know, so we need a transition. And right. so there is, and, you know, when you look at it, they haven't proven the efficiency, you know, on, on them. And one of, one of our big sticking points, because, you know, Michigan and between Michigan and Canada, they fight over landfills and garbage quite a bit and stuff mm. like that. Nobody knows how to get rid of the batteries. They don't mm. have them up to a standard yet where we can where we can reuse them over and over again. And there's a lot of waste. We're worried about that. So, I mean, there's a lot of concerns, like the infrastructure is a main one. You know, I mean, our, our we have rolling blackouts in this country. Sometimes they mm -hmm. can't produce enough to to keep people's air conditioning running. So, right. But we're we're an internal engine plant, so you got to expect us almost to take that kind of stance. For you sure. Know? I mean, that's that's our product. That's I right. I make cam chats and and connecting rods and things of that nature, and I'm proud of it. You know, we mm -hmm. make good ones. Yep. But so. m most important thing is that whatever work y'all do or people end up doing is that uh y'all are taken care of and uh and and it's good to see it's good to see some movement from gm's gm specifically they were the ones that that, that folded the battery plants into the national agreement yeah. so yep exactly we're making progress and i i think president payne's doing a good job 
um, uh, there were a lot of people that were kind of nervous to see a guy with, you know, who some considered a little bit radical, but I think he's doing a good job. So, yeah. you know, I mean, and I, I was, I was involved when I got up to a certain point, I was Sergeant at arms on the international skill trade sub council. Mm. And I looked around and I didn't decide that I decided that that job wasn't for me just for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of stress. I mean, there was, right. at that level, there was a lot of stress. So, but so now you see what I'm doing. I'm just writing books of funny stories of people. Do you mind if I mention that? Because I'm going to give it away for free on Kindle. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to mention. I, I wanted to mention that. So I, I'll let you take it away. So when I walked, I transferred from that plant that got sold to the Chinese. I transferred into the back to a General Motors plant. They call it a flowback. And my first day in there, we're walking around, and this this old man, we were walking in our little group of people, men and women, I think there's about eight or nine of us, and we're walking around, and this old man pops out from behind this machine that says, excuse me, sir, did you get one of these yet today? And he flipped me off, and before I could say anything to the guy, he turned to the lady next to me, and he goes, how about you, ma'am, did you get one of these yet today? And he, he flipped her off, too, you know. And some people might be offended by that, but I knew that that was that guy's way of saying, hey, I got some stories to tell. Come on back, you know. So over <laughs> like the next three years, I came back and I I would tell him stories from the old steering gear plant. He would tell me stories that happened right where we were at in Bay City there. And then we lost him to cancer. So I started thinking about all those people that I've worked with through the years that, you know, repetitive jobs, they play little tricks on you and stuff like that. So it's just, it's just kind of funny that, you know, the things that they can do, and it was a really fun book to write. There's a chapter in there called Messing with the Boss. There's one called Overboard Paybacks where, you know, workers will get going back and forth at each other, and then somebody comes way over the top, and mm. those moments, you kind of remember them, you know what I mean? Right. So, but yeah, it's just a little fun book of 60 stories. There's no bashing anybody at any kind, uh, like uh, no union bashing, no... Um, company bashing. No, even the boss that's got the job of giving me something to do every day. I don't bash them either. It's just people do funny things. And if you're paying attention and you write some of that stuff down, then uh, so the book's called, did you get one of these yet today? And Amazon allows me to give it away for five days over a 90 day period. So for the next five Fridays, because that's when they've been doing the typical UAW updates. For the next five Fridays, I'm going to give it away for free on Amazon Kindle. So, or you can go to Amazon and order it under the name. Did you get one of these yet today? But I hope you guys like them. All right. I'm looking forward to reading it. Appreciate it. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for the books. Yep. Take it easy, Jacob. All right. Yeah, really appreciate it. Um, Looking forward to checking out the book. Uh, My father-in-law is a UAW retiree, and he always has great stories about the pranks that they used to pull on each other at the plant. You know, like he said, repetitive jobs, people get bored, Mm. Um, you know, and, you know, guys especially, like, we never fully grow up. And so, um, you know, we're we're kind of got that high school prankster mentality a lot of times, even regardless of how old we are. So, uh, yeah, I I can't wait to look into it and, and share it with my father in law as well. Awesome. I appreciate it. I gave you guys a couple extra copies just because I thought that maybe you would know that. And to be honest, you spend a lot of time, a lot more time with your coworkers, actually, mm-hmm. than you spend with your family a lot of times, you know, working 12 hour days, 
that's your family, you know, and that's right. what the book's all about. It's just union, family, having fun. Yep. Thank so, you. All right. Appreciate, Appreciate you, man. It. Have a you good follow. weekend. You too. That's going to be it for us today, I think. I think we're going to wrap up. Um, so appreciate everybody hanging out with us. Like the stream on your way out. If you haven't, subscribe to the channel. Uh, TVLR.fm slash donate to make a one-time or monthly recurring contribution. That's how we stay on the air. We have to we buy the airtime on the radio. Um, so I don't know how, how many people know that or remember that, but uh, but that costs money. And then we don't make money, but we pay people on the back end uh, to do some of these nice graphics that you're seeing, uh, this nice camera that I'm looking into, this nice microphone we rent from the studio space here. Um, so, you know, it takes a, it takes a good amount of money to make this run. And if we are ever able to uh, consistently bring in more than our operating costs, then we will get on more radio stations. So... Um, that's so right. <clears throat> that's right. And if you are in an area outside of our radio market, if you are in Montgomery, Birmingham, Mobile, uh, Anniston, and you're like, hey, I would love to have the Valley Labor Report on local commercial radio, hit us up um, and talk to us. If we could find the sponsors, we are happy to expand um, yep. and always looking into that. Um, and I did have a couple plugs before we wrap up this afternoon. Um, and again, I appreciate everyone tuning in. I want to remind folks about Shop Talk. Uh, that will be Thursday and this week, this week only, it will be at 10.30 a.m. Really looking forward to that one. How to have 10-minute meetings. Uh, I've never uh, spoken to Lisa from Labor Notes before. She's newer on their staff, so really looking forward to that. Um, I heard her on the Counterspin podcast a couple weeks ago. She did a great job. Uh, and speaking of labor notes, they do have some really great trainings coming up. Um, they have in November a stewards workshop called Assertive Grievance Handling. That's on November 15th. Should be really good. Of course, they have What to Do When Your Union Breaks Your Heart. That'll be on November 7th. Uh, here's one that is very relevant to the conversation we were just having, which is Fight the Boss, Fix the Climate on October 23rd. So check that out. Um, I always love labor and environmental coalition building. Any way we can work together to fix these crises, I think is just so important. So uh, I love that they're having that workshop. And of course, they have their Secrets of a Successful Organizer October series. Um, they had the first one already on the 11th, but you can still pop in for the 18th and the 25th. If you've never attended a Secrets of a Successful Organizer series by Labor Notes, I highly, highly recommend it if you're at all interested in getting more involved. And that's more involved in your union, but honestly more involved in your community. It's just a lot of good principles to learn. And um, on Monday, October 16th, so just a couple days from now, will be uh, Blair L.M. Kelly's little class with the Zen Education Project on her latest book, Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class. Uh, we interviewed historian Blair L.M. Kelly about a month or so ago. Really enjoyed that conversation with her. Uh, it's a really good book, and uh, I'm a big fan of Zen Education Project, so uh, you can sign up for that online session. Uh, again, that's Monday, October 16th. And as I mentioned earlier, Alabama Rise 2024 priorities are in. 
Uh, so definitely check out their uh, 2024 Roadmap for Change in Alabama. Uh, I've been out the last couple of weeks. One of one of those weekends was for the Arise annual meeting where the members got to vote on the agenda. Uh, so really excited about that. <clears throat> and Jacob was on Left Reckoning. I was on America's Workforce. I've been on America's Workforce every month now for quite a while. Uh, uh, in September, I was on, I was like a featured guest. And then uh, this past week, I was just on for a few minutes to talk about Stage, man stage Management Day. Uh, but do check out my episode of the Huntsville Progressive, especially those of you in Alabama. Uh, it's a local podcast here in Huntsville. Uh, Joy Johnson does that podcast. She's a longtime activist here in the Huntsville area. Uh, so really appreciate her her time and having me on the show. And um, final thing I'll plug is to sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we're putting out Boss Watch and Last Week in Southern Labor as newsletters. You can sign up at tvlr.fm. Uh, definitely do that. And um, just spread the word, y'all. Spread the word. Um, and uh, I, you know what? I just realized that National Bosses Day is Monday. Mm. And... Um, so I think in honor of National Bosses Day, if y'all can give us some text messages and some voicemails over the next week, that would be great. Share your bad boss stories. Tell us about your favorite bosses, your worst bosses. Uh, but we've got to do something to honor National Bosses Day. I feel like it's kind of essential. All right, we'll close the show by giving you an update to the... Um, Decatur police killing of a citizen uh, last week. This just came out two hours ago uh, on AL.com. In response to a public records request Thursday, the Decatur City Clerk confirmed that no court orders were issued and thus no order in which a judge authorized the police to assist in repossession. Mm. The the legislature approved official commentary that informs the statute governing vehicle repossessions in the state explicitly states that the statute does not authorize law enforcement to, to assist in repossessions without judicial process. Wow. Of which there was none. Apparently. Wow. So even more evidence of wrongdoing here. Yeah. And... Um... Again, just sending my love and solidarity to all the folks affected out there. Um, it's it's past time for some justice. Yep. All right. See you next week, folks. Thanks for staying with us.